Welcome to episode 132, Before You Write the Letter, What Clinicians Should Know About Emotional Support Animals, featuring Ariel Landrum, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am always delighted to talk with Ariel Landrum. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified art therapist and also the clinical director of guidance teletherapy. She is licensed all over uh, in California, Nevada, Oregon, Colorado, Kansas, and Florida. And she also has a specialization in um, emotional support animals and service animals. So that's why she's here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ariel. Thank you for having me. It's always, always amazing to talk to you, Beth. So you and I had actually already had this conversation. And as you and I record this right now, we are at the very end of April 2021. You and I had had this conversation a while ago and talked about the laws relating to emotional support animals, and then everything changed in relation to airlines. So today, for any of our listeners, keep in mind when you're listening to this podcast, because you may need to do some... um, sleuthing on your end to make sure that the laws have stayed the same. Um, but so mm-hmm. we're going to be going off of the laws as they exist right now in April of 2021. So Ariel, for our listeners, why don't you tell uh, us about yourself and how you came to have this specialization? Yes. Yeah, so um, I have been licensed since uh, December 2015. So really, it's just 2016. Uh, and um, I was working uh, with military members. Uh, I had a contract with the Navy. And uh my service members often wanted uh, an emotional support animal. They would ask me about uh, if they were able to obtain one, what what it was like, what what um, you know, would it be helpful? And I didn't know anything about <laughs> emotional support animals. I I didn't even I hadn't even heard that term. I I wrongly thought they were the same as a service animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I did my due diligence. I took trainings. I um I looked up research from the um, APA, uh, and I had uh, a lot of discussions with um, other clinicians in other other states that were already writing these letters, and um, I I gained a lot of insight on how helpful uh, an emotional support animal is and how different it is from having a leisurely pet. Um, as we're, we're aware and research shows, having a pet is just something that gives you support and comfort. Having having a pet gives you um, a connection, is family. We grieve their loss when they're gone. They're very important. Um, but there's a d- difference and a distinction between having a pet and having a, an emotional support animal. Um, and finding out and learning that distinction and even how it differs from a service animal um, really gave me a just sort of like a new niche, I would say, in my practice um, and gave me additional tools in helping my my service members, especially um, when they, uh, as the contract ended with the Navy and I was no longer able to see them in some of the states that they moved to because I wasn't licensed there, um, able to help maybe transition the therapeutic gains that we had through the use of their emotional support animal. This is something you've invested so much time and energy in understanding and also in educating the clinical community. So thank you for joining us and for the work you're doing elsewhere as well. Why don't we start there of just talking about what an ESA, an emotional support animal is, how that differs from a service animal versus a therapy animal, and just kind of start with the definitions and then we'll go from there. 
So they're all under one umbrella term of assisted animal. So an animal that's assisting in some way with its handler. So we're going to identify um, the individual who has this animal as a handler instead of like an owner. Um, and so uh, we, we sort of have three categories. And in one of those three categories, you branch out into like two. Uh, so the first one is a service animal. And so service animal has been specifically trained to perform a task for its handler to help mitigate a disability. Um, now the service animal could help uh, mitigate a medical disability, physical disability, um, or a psychiatric disability. So that's where it branches out from service animal to psychiatric service animal. Um, and so uh, the training involves specific certifications from actual um, uh, training communities. And uh, those certifications um, could be as simple as opening a door. Um, they could be uh, as uh, difficult um, or uh, as alerting specific people uh, if the uh, handler is about to have a seizure. Uh, the very interesting thing is that um, uh, the handler does not have to disclose what their disability is. It's actually discrimination to ask someone, are you disabled or what's your disability? Um, instead, you can ask about the service animal and saying, does this service animal perform a task to help mitigate uh, a disability or to help assist? Um, and if the answer is yes, and through actual training, then that, that technically is a service animal. Um, the uh, additional thing that's also uh, people say makes a service animal is service animals wear vests. Now, that's actually not true. There's no legal requirement in, in any of the states that uh, any assisted animal needs to wear a vest to identify themselves. But due to a lot of discrimination that's occurred and discrimination that's increased since more people have started using emotional support animals and communities are not understanding the differences, oftentimes uh, pe uh, people will get a vest to identify that their animal is a service animal so that they won't uh, get unnecessary questioning um, and that uh public spaces won't attempt to try to prevent uh, their access to their um, service animal. Now, when it comes to a psychiatric uh, service animal, their training is specific to mental health conditions. And oftentimes we see them uh, for uh, individuals who have PTSD and they prevent a flashback. Um, and so uh, the VA specifically has um, a one of the advocacy groups that uh, really encourages the use of uh, a psychiatric service animal and has specific trainings that they provide. So that's that's a service animal. That's that's one uh, category in our assisted animal umbrella. Then you have a therapy animal. Uh, so a therapy animal is a, a specific assisted animal that helps its handler provide comfort to others. So not essentially assisting the handler um, in regards to their uh, own uh, medical, mental, or emotional states, um, but specifically to provide support for others. They're often trained with um, just general good citizen training is what it's called. So you would go to um, a, a specific trainer, you could go to, to Petco or PetSmart, um, and they have um, actual certifications that, that are given to certify the animal as a good citizen. That doesn't mean that they're now certified as a therapy animal. Um, and so the difference is oftentimes the handler is teaching 
this animal or supporting this animal to identify maybe emotional states. So if a, if a client in a group therapy session is sad, this animal may go sit on that, that client's lap or be next to them or, or be accessed in petting. Oftentimes these animals, you'll see them at hospital settings um, to be able to provide just comfort and support to, um, and, and really sense of community uh, to the, the clients and patients in those areas. Um, these animals are given special permission by those specific locations to be on site. So they are, they don't get the same legal accommodations as a service animal, and, and they don't get the same legal accommodations as an emotional support animal. They, they have, the I would say, the least legal accommodations because they aren't exactly needed to mitigate uh, any symptoms. Instead, they are being used as a, like a, a tool for the community. So that specific building is already given permission to the handler to allow this uh, animal on site. We do see them get deployed. Uh, so we, we've seen like the Red Cross specifically and, and um, other uh, outreach communities deploy them, particularly when there are mass shootings. Um, uh, we definitely um, have seen them in, in spaces for therapeutic assistance. Um, but again, they're, they're assisting others. They're not assisting their handler. I mean, essentially, they're assisting their handler because they're working for them. When you talk about this, I hear the difference in the distinction you're making between owner and handler. And can you talk a little bit more about what it means to be a handler and why you use that language as opposed to just saying owner? Yeah, so I, I definitely use the language handler instead of owner because you may have multiple handlers for uh, an assisted animal. Now, with a, a service animal, their their handler is often their owner as well. But because they received specialized training, they had other handlers before they were assigned and, and given this human to, to help support. Um, to help actually give service tasks and needs. Um, and same with uh, a, a therapy um, animal in that their their handler would, may have even been chosen by uh, their, uh, their owner, uh, but their handler could be maybe giving this um, animal to the, the hospital. So maybe the hospital will have other handlers walking around with this animal. So um, the distinction is that not all the times is the owner also the handler, but most of the time it is. Got it. So for service animals, and you mentioned the psychiatric piece as well, what are the trainings involved just so clinicians can help kind of separate a service animal from a therapy animal um, from an emotional support animal to kind of keep those distinctions really um, obvious? Yeah, so um, with a therapy animal and even with emotional support animal, it's it it's good and expected to have for them to at least have the good citizen training to learn um, to respond to basic commands, including not barking. Um, but with a service animal specifically, uh, and and encouraged for a, a, a therapy animal, they're trained to be in a variety of environments. So um, particularly hospital settings, they're trained to listen to beeps and sounds and ignore them. If you go in a hospital, there are just lots of odd noises, like it, it, it just is. It doesn't feel like regular sounds you hear every day, especially high-pitched sounds of beeping, um, like code alerts, um, anything over the intercom. That can be very distressing to an animal that's not used to that. So they, they learn how to be in a variety of environments. They also learn 
how to engage in uh, with their handler in a variety of settings. So they learn how to walk next to a wheelchair or crutches. Um, they, they learn how to be next to their handler when they're sitting down or, or standing up um, by a bed. Um, they, uh, they learn how to use their bark as a command for alert as opposed to a, a bark that could be a growl or a snarl, if the animal's a dog, for example. Um, uh, there are service animals that are even um, uh, we think dog, but they're not always a dog. Sometimes with a service animal, we have the miniature horses. Um, and so that they have more balance and stability. They could be leaned on. They're a lot sturdier. Um, so uh, service animals are trained to not only in execute those tasks, um, but they're trained to execute them in environments that could be highly distracting to other animals. Um, uh, even just, you know, with my, my own pets, if, so, if the male comes to the door... <laughs> comes every day, it, it does not matter. They're, they feel distressed in the moment. Um, and it takes me a good energy to get them to calm down and essentially ignore what they consider a threat. Um, the service animal would not do that. Uh, it should be noted that any assisted animal, um, legally, if they pose a threat to others, if they if they create a sense of harm, so if they bite or attempt to attack, if they if they growl and can't be under control, be told to you know stop growling or to to back off, um, legally there the, the, there needs to be no accommodation for them. If it seems like the handler can't handle them, many people listening to this not only have probably been faced with questions about writing an ESA letter, but also, can I turn my dog into a therapy dog or what would that entail? And I'm saying dog. So actually, let me clarify there. What animals are considered under this umbrella? You mentioned miniature horses. So what are examples of assisted animals? Yeah, so um, there are some individuals who are highly allergic uh, to fur, so some assisted animals, more um, emotional support and, and therapy um, animals, but some assisted animals have been things without feathers or furs, so lizards. Um, I've, I've definitely seen individuals who have iguanas or bearded dragons, um, and uh when it comes to a service animal, they're less likely to be something like a bird because they don't have as many skill sets. Uh, but birds can be trained. Um, so, so it really depends on the specific disability they're mitigating. If the bird is, is meant to call an alert, right, like is trained to say, you know, Alexa, call 911, uh, that essentially could be a service animal. That is such a fascinating example. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, have you ever worked with somebody in that context where they had trained a bird to say something specific? Um, I've definitely had clients who trained birds to say something specific, but they weren't certified as service animals. Um, you'll you'll notice that majority of service animals specifically are dogs, um, and majority of them are even breed specific. They really like golden retrievers mm -hmm. and now doodles, not only because of their size, but their demeanor. Um, and and just like there are biases uh, against uh, people, there are biases against uh, animal breeds and specifically types of dog breeds. Um, but uh, certainly I've had clients who, at least for emotional support, um, they they had uh, they definitely had lizards and birds. And um, as long as there was a nexus, I could I could show that the that the animal and they could show that the animal was was helping them with specific um, uh, situations around their mental health. Then. Um, then yeah, they, they, they were trained to do specific things. When it came to the bird, it was um, uh, affirmations. Bird learned how to say affirmations. That is so cool. I'm just processing that. 
I've also would like to say I was given permission to use specific examples uh, in this Thank podcast. You. Thank you for um, saying that. For anyone who's concerned. Um, that That is really interesting because I can certainly think of times where I've heard uh, birds say inappropriate things, but not affirmations. <laughs> yep. Affirmations and singing specific songs uh, that, that bring joy and, um, and prayer. Um, uh, the, the bird would announce it was time to pray. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And that just like my mind is a little bit blown processing that. You mentioned the word nexus. Uh, can you please describe what a nexus is? Yeah. So specifically with emotional support animal, um, the law uh, or mm, the way the laws are written. Now, there's not one law, I should say, because I've, uh, it's different per state. Um, but that there needs to be a uh, way to describe how um, the handler and uh, the animal are needed, how they work with each other, and specifically how the symptom that the uh, animal is helping to give support to um, is actually being mitigated. So it's slightly different in that this animal hasn't been trained to do a task, but due to the relationship, the nexus, the actual um, uh, experience that the handler has with the animal, the animals learn how to provide comfort to that individual. So it's individual specific. Uh, when it uh, you know, tip when it comes to letters, if you don't already have an animal, I'm not going to write you a letter uh, because I can't prove a nexus. Um, and you may have had history in the past where you've had previous animals that uh, were um, necessary to help mitigate um, your uh, emotional distress or other symptoms uh, with your mental health related disorder. But I don't have any way of like assessing that if there's nothing here that I, I can sort of see um, and there's there's no way to talk about it. Um, so so all, all my clients, when uh, they they show me, um, because I've been doing telehealth so long, I can see it through telehealth, how they are comforted um, by the access of this animal um, and how um, and they talk about, I don't have them show me this, but they talk about how when the animal's gone um, and they don't have access to it, uh, that comfort goes away and the symptoms increase. Um, so some uh, examples are definitely, um, I've had clients with severe isolation, obviously now more because of the pandemic, and they only have ever been able to say they felt loved and needed by their ESA. Um, so we, we know animals give unconditional positive regard, but for someone who may have severe trauma who's never experienced that um, and has now gotten it, um, they don't want that to go away. They don't want that to essentially be taken from them. They want to know that they can go home to um, an animal that's expecting them, needing them, wanting them, and, and enjoys them being around. So effectively, a nexus is, that nexus is essentially medical necessity, the establishment of a clinical need and some kind of intervention, in this case, a specific animal and the animal's behaviors to meet that clinical need and produce a benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why why do we have ESAs? So we've talked about that a therapy animal is an animal that's been trained to go into hospitals or maybe even for us as clinicians be in the therapy room and they have what you talked about with the citizenship. But why do we need ESAs? What do, what does having an ESA letter do for somebody? Yeah, so it um one of the things is, you know, we allow, we want to make sure that we allow our clients autonomy in regards to what their treatment is and, and how um, treatment is sort of given to them and what is affected to them. 
Um, and so I have some clients who um, haven't been able to find medications that have worked, um, have have gone through what they consider like the roller coaster and run around, and it, it, it has not been beneficial for them. Um, and they have found that uh, with the, the relationship they have with their ESA, that is what was able to keep panic attacks away, or, or that relationship was able to um, mitigate suicidal ideation. Um, they, there was a a desire um, and uh, to continue treatment goals and stay in treatment, but also actual release and reprieve that they hadn't experienced before. Um, so a lot of it uh, is is really um, not just dependent on the relationship between the animal and the client, but your belief system, because you have to really believe that your clients are being genuine and true and honest with you. Um, and, and that takes some good assessing that, that definitely takes some good questions. Um, but also really checking in on your biases. Cause if you don't believe that there is a relationship in excess and, and you don't trust that what your client is telling you is accurate, um, then you probably won't ever really write a letter. So with the APA, they suggest that you, um, Instead, refer your client out to someone who specializes in writing the letter because now you're getting into a stance of dual relationship where you're potentially doing a forensic analysis and you're also providing treatment. So oftentimes um, now, as I've learned and grown, because I didn't know this in the beginning, now um, when I provide these letters, I do a full assessment. I do um, uh, uh, lots of psychoeducation. I do uh, discussing the risks and benefits with the client, but they are not my ongoing treating client. I usually am working in collaboration with proper releases signed with a therapist that they're seeing to treat for other forms of treatment. In that way, there's a separation distinction that if I can't see the nexus, it it, it doesn't ruin or creates a therapeutic rupture in the relationship. Um, and they can sort of process and work on that with their, with their primary treating clinician. That's a really interesting point that you just made and having that separation. I'm curious, knowing that you see clients long-term for psychotherapy, what do you do if a client says, can you write me this letter, an existing client? Do you refer out? Or if the nexus is obvious for you, do you write the letter yourself? If the nexus is obvious for me, I will consider writing the letter. But I do have a really long discussion first with the client if they're comfortable with that. Um, because uh, I have long history with them. If and if, if anything were to go down, quote unquote, um, and someone wants access to records and the courts need access to records and they got it, um, would the client be comfortable to access to all of that versus a essentially a forensic assessment that is mm -hmm. just identifying these sort of criteria? Um, but majority of the time, if I can't see the nexus, because we are working on something that um, maybe it, it, I can't incorporate right. in the treatment, um, that I can't shift the treatment plan in a way that it, it would allow for me to also discuss how the ESA is supporting the client, then I will refer out to have um, a, a colleague of mine uh, do the assessment, that, that sort of like third, third party perspective. Interesting. So to state it for our listeners, mental health professionals are not qualified to authorize a quote unquote service animal. And nope, we are only qualified to uh, write a letter relating to ESAs. What is the benefit of that letter in society in terms of the laws and, and the um, access points that are afforded to an ESA handler or owner? 
So um, the laws did uh, include airlines. They don't anymore. That's shifted and changed. So that's why it's absolutely important for clinicians to do their due diligence. Part of doing the risks uh, and benefits conversation is that you are also aware of the laws um, and how they differ, even within your state. I do believe that there may be a couple of ethics boards that don't allow any uh, mental health master's level uh, licensed clinician to um, write letters. They've, they've gone um, and stated against that. I, I don't know which those states are, but um, the individuals in those states, I think, do know because it's on their, their law and ethics exams. But um, specifically what the law states is that um, in a dwelling, so in a, in a client's uh, dwelling or home, um, they could have access to their ESA without a, a financial I don't want to say reprimand, but like uh, investment. Um, so that means there would be no, uh, if so, some housing or apartment dwellings have uh, a monthly pet rent. So it's like you're paying your rent and the pet rent. You wouldn't be doing this. Um, some places have a non-refundable um, security deposit for having a pet. In this case, it would be refundable um, if there's no damage done. So those are some of the um, accommodations that are given to individuals who have an emotional support animal because the emotional support animal is not just a leisurely pet. Um, it actually is assisting this individual in um, uh, being able to experience their dwelling the same as other individuals who may not have a mental health disability, who may not have a, a, um, a, the experience of adverse symptoms in the way that the client is having. In the past, airlines used to allow ESAs without a fee. That has changed within the last six months. So now if someone has an ESA, basically my understanding is the letter doesn't mean anything. You still pay X number of dollars to bring that animal on the plane with you. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Um, I know a lot of advocacy groups are attempting to uh, change uh, this new law. Um, and uh, if they are able to do enough advocacy that it changes, I don't see it changing anytime soon because it takes a while for laws to even be put in. Um, and even before, uh, the accommodation only included U.S. airlines. So if you're flying internationally, once you get off the plane and if you need to do a transfer flight to another sort of international airline, that wasn't an accommodation either. Um, so the there were essentially fees already put in place. And that, again, part of the, the risk benefit conversation. Um, and, and again, any of these accommodations, if the animal poses a threat to others, mm -hmm. um, uh, then then certainly would not be accommodated. And and there are, again, exceptions even to some of the accommodations. If the animal's too big, for this space. Um, so, for example, there are certain laws about how much acreage a horse has to be on. So if someone has uh, an emotional support animal um, and they uh, don't have enough acreage in a dwelling that they're essentially renting, um, they, that would not be an accommodation uh, because we also have to think of the health and wellness of the animal. And part of your assessment um, it, when you're assessing for the nexus is are you also sure that the client can and has the ability to take care of this animal? That point you just made, I think, was a really easy one to miss in considering the well-being of the animal. Can you restate that again? I think that was really powerful. 
Yeah. So remember that when you are saying that this animal has a nexus is is necessary for this individual to function, you also need to know what level of functioning your client is at to be able to, with the nexus, assist this animal in the sense that they have a relationship. This animal um, uh, cannot survive without essentially this human making sure that they have um, not just food and water, but uh, up to up to date on their shots, uh, getting regular um, medical treatment. So I I have had to um, deny the request for writing a letter because my client is not financially stable enough. Because mm-hmm. um, I also have to consider if the client is unable to to take care of their ESA and the ESA were to be harmed in some way, how much harm would that do to my client? Because they would feel directly responsible. Um, and that is that level of repair, I'm just not clinically <laughs> able to do. Um, so certainly you want to make sure that you're assessing that the, the client has, has uh, the means to be able to take care of this pet and understands what is necessary to take care of this pet. So I used the example before of um, someone who's highly allergic to like feathers or fur and may have a lizard. Lizards require specific heating patterns. Um, And does the client know this? Would they be able to regulate the tank? That point, I think, could be easily overlooked by clinicians. I can see a therapist saying, oh, I can establish nexus here, but neglecting to consider the systemic function of that animal's well-being in relation to that forensic aspect that you mentioned of letter writing. Going back to ESAs and dwellings, that covers things like apartments. What about for things like hotels or this day and age, people are staying in temporary environments, aren't hotels like Airbnbs, things like that? Are there any laws that you know of that protect the uh, handler from additional fees relating to having that ESA with them? No. So those public spaces uh, are not accommodations that ESAs have access to. And even when it came to when ESAs were accommodated in airlines, other transportation like cabs, Ubers, or the or bus or trains were not included in in those accommodations. Uh, the uh, general understanding of the law and the reason that those aren't included is that an emotional support animal is helping you through. Uh, uh, Essentially, you're you're mitigating a majority of your symptoms in the home space, so that as you re-enter and re-engage into the community, you feel uh, more ready and able to do those things. And then, when you essentially go back to your dwelling, you're able to maintain your level of stability and calm and um, uh, ability to uh, mitigate those symptoms because you're already getting sort of like that daily treatment from being um, home. Now, uh, if you are someone who travels often, um, you may not have as much access to your emotional support animal. So you may be able to prove a nexus. You may be able to prove that the uh, client has the ability to take care of this pet, but how much access do they have with this emotional support animal, Mm -hmm. with this assisted animal, and how much actual mitigation is there going to be? Um, And so that's a consideration uh, in regards to the letter and if you want to write one or prove or deny it. Um, and, And again, what adjunctive supports and resources that you want to provide the client, not just the letter. Got it. And how about for work? Does an ESA have any protections relating to the workplace and saying I have post-traumatic stress disorder and having this animal with me helps me when I have flashbacks? Are there any protections for ESAs or is that when you cross into the service animal category? 
So that's when you cross into the service cat uh, animal category. And again, with the training of a service animal, these um, training sites, rarely do they accept an already existing animal that has a relationship with you. They they often are training, again, specific breeds to, to do these uh, tasks and then assigning it to the appropriate um, individual who needs one. Now, we're working from home, so <laughs> there's an argument there in that you, you have the accommodation in, in your home dwelling. But um, when it comes to uh, essentially like HRs, they don't necessarily have to provide that accommodation because legally it's it's not written in the law. Um, and so if you are someone who does have um, uh, dissociative um, uh, experiences, if you're someone who has flashbacks, you may want to look into seeing if you can get a psychiatric uh, service animal. Why the distinction between just quote unquote service animal and psychiatric service animal? How did that happen and come to be? I know when I hear that, what comes up to me is almost this violation of privacy of why is there a distinction between whether something is related to a medical condition and somebody's blood sugar, for example, or it's relating to a psychiatric condition. Yeah, so that actually came about in regards to the emotional support animal because there was an, apparently a need to distinct um, when uh, uh, even though a service animal provides tasks, um, when that task was related to uh, a mental health condition versus giving emotional comfort and support, um, and that this individual, this individual, this uh, animal specifically trained, um, and that the other one may not be. Um, uh, I do think, again, that goes towards uh, some biases in the community around mental health and the stigma of mental health. Um, but if you are getting even just an emotional support animal and you're writing a letter, though the letter does not contain your diagnosis, the letter does identify this me as the assessing clinician with well, the date that I assessed you and that you have a mental health condition um, that could be mitigated by um, an ESA. So there's already a level of disclosure. And so that goes back to the risks and benefits. Are you even comfortable with that amount and that level of disclosure to your landlord who um, you may not feel has the right to even know these things? You should just be able to have access to your ESA. Legally, they have the right to at least document why they're providing this accommodation. So at this point, really, the only benefit to an ESA is for dwelling and knowing that that's changed dramatically. Because I remember a few years ago, there was almost a fad in getting an ESA letter and knowing that that was abused, not all the time, but that there were individuals that abused that to avoid the $200 fee or whatever it was. Um, and that I remember reading the struggle between the clients and the mental health professionals and the airline industry as a whole. And so basically that's simply been done away with. Yeah. I, I do believe that um, there's going to be some changes again, just cause like, because things change. Uh, and it's always specific, I think, on the state and the community. So, you know, if you're in an area that is just animal friendly anyways, um, you may have more access to your ESA going out with you simply because these places are allowing that accommodation. Um, when it comes to being legally accommodated, it is dwelling specific. And even there are exceptions to dwelling. I, I mentioned size. Um, if you're renting a, a home that the landlord lives in and it has less than four or less uh, living spaces, so like a house, they don't have to accommodate it. They're, they're essentially considered living in their own private dwelling, um, and so they don't have to provide you accommodation. 
Uh, definitely when it comes to schools, that's another little tricky one. Uh, schools uh, do have dwellings. They do need to provide accommodation. But most universities, they actually require ongoing treatment being provided by the person assessing you. They don't want um, a, a forensic experience. And they often want access to records of this mental health condition being present even before you were seeing this uh, assessing clinician. So um, when it comes to uh, universities and, and college campuses, um, that involves really talking to um, the, uh, the board and, and having an idea of what they, what they need necessary to be able to provide this accommodation, which again dips into less and less confidentiality for this accommodation. You've mentioned that idea of balancing risks and benefits, and you've already also mentioned that you have a long conversation. You've mentioned the responsibility for the handler and the consideration of the best interest of the animal and their health and safety, those very specific laws that you know that the average person does not. What are some of those risks and benefits that we haven't talked about that you feel like are really important for clients to know about. And then I also follow up want to get to what are the risks and benefits with clinicians and considering this role for a client? So I, I would definitely have a conversation with the client on um, if they're moving out of state. Uh, so, you know, I, again, I'm only licensed in the states that I'm licensed in. Um, so let's let's say you're moving from California to Texas. Um, this letter may let an individual in Texas allow you that accommodation, but the letter is only legal for a year. Then, then there needs to be a reassessment to ensure that the nexus is still present um, or that the symptoms haven't mitigated to the point where there's no medical necessity. And that's going to have to be assessed by someone licensed in Texas. Um, there's also the consideration of, again, um, at other laws in the city um, or, or county, um, again, breed specific. Some uh, places uh, ban pit bulls and the, the ESA um, does, even though there's a a law that says you can have access to your ESA in the dwelling. If that breed has been banned in the city, you're not likely to get accommodation. You can attempt to fight for it, but that's a lot of legal fees um, and you may not win. Um, so there's there's making sure there's research being done in regards to the place that you're moving to. Um, and uh, other considerations for the client, again, and just being aware of the risks and benefits, you still have to abide by leash laws. You still have to abide by, you know, um, taking care of the animal in regards to the property. So picking up feces. If if your condition doesn't allow you to do that, if you are, um, you know, maybe highly adverse to feces and, and you don't want to clean up after your pet, then you might be legally liable for any of the destruction that occurs. Um, and certainly it's always encouraged the clients to do the good citizenship training. The your pet should should be able to um, uh, listen to some basic commands in regards to um, closeness and safety, um, uh, and so that it really prevents any adversity in regards to mm -hmm. your neighbors or the community that you're living in. Um, when it comes to clinicians, again, that licensing specific one is your is your client moving to a state. Um, or the individual you're assessing. So if you decide to take the forensic route like me, the person you're assessing moving to a state where they are not going to be able to use your license for renewal. So 
I, I always do my due diligence and give the three referrals right up front there because they can contact me a year later and, and, and ask me for those referrals. I may not be able to get to that in time. Um, and this gives them an opportunity to connect with somebody as soon as they get there. Um, and then if that person's no longer licensed a year later or, you know, because they won the lottery <laughs> and they no longer want to provide clinical care, they probably have already connected that individual with someone else who's licensed and able to do the feels comfortable doing the ESA letters. The, some other clinical distinctions is, again, the dual relationship. Are are you including the ESA as part of the treatment plan and documenting to it? Are, are you talking about specific goals in regards to the ESA? Or are you sticking more with the forensic route? And if so, what um, information did you give the client so there isn't a feeling of abandonment and that the client has other accesses to resources that isn't only at the ESA? For some clients, that's all they want, that they only want access to the ESA, and that's enough to mitigate the symptoms. Um, but do they have at least names and numbers uh, to reach out to if those symptoms start to get worse because things change in their environment or their situation? Going back to the specifications relating to ESAs, we talked about you know what's required of certain dwellings, for example, and whether or not you can incur a fee that, you know, however much it is, $100 a month pet fee, or pet deposit fee. What about moving into an apartment that, for example, has a hard line that says no animals, no pets? Does an ESA letter allow you to then to have that animal with you? Or basically, which which is higher? So the law says that the accommodation is higher. Uh, again, if it's not in those exceptions, like you're moving into someone's household um, or your ESA is too big um, or uh, is going to somehow cause destruction, again, usually because of size, um, then uh, you have the right um, as the handler to have access to that ESA to be able to ha enjoy your dwelling in the um, same uh, or similar fashion as someone else who would not have the same mental health related disorder. Now, when it comes to landlords, the only other exception is, again, price for the accommodation. Can they prove that accommodating this ESA would essentially bankrupt them. Um, and oftentimes it's no, if they, if they, if they aren't adding anything like uh, canals or, or crating, um, that's, that's all in the handler. Um, then, then legally they, they need to provide this accommodation to someone who has a, a mental health related disorder, a, a mental health disability, essentially. My law and ethics brain is always jumping to it sounds bad, but kind of like worst case scenario, like when things go sideways, yes. what what does that look like? So, you know, I'm imagining not worst, worst case, but I'm imagining a client getting an ESA letter, they're living in a new apartment complex, and they have a dog that is just delightful, but barks incessantly. Mm -hmm. What happens in those situations where that um, ESA is affecting the community at large, and there have been complaints from other apartment dwellers nearby. Yeah, so that is a scenario where they are likely to uh, lose access to that dwelling. They, mm -hmm. they could essentially be given an eviction notice, like, you know, definitely noise complaints and regarding um, uh, the, the police. Um, and it, it's proof that they can't handle uh, their their emotional support animal. They, they either the, the animal that hasn't had enough training or the, the handler doesn't have um, enough understanding on how to assert the commands um, and is therefore at risk of losing their, their dwelling. Can a clinician revoke an ESA letter? Is that a thing? So not essentially revoke because the letters do last a year. Right. But if you're providing ongoing treatment to your client and you believe that the client's 
symptoms have been mitigated enough they no longer actually need access to their ESA, then it really depends on the release of information. If the release right. of information you had with your client only states that you can write this letter to give to them to give to their landlord, then that's it. If you a release of information says you're allowed to have ongoing relationship with the landlord or manager, um, if you have a conversation with your client and it feels clinically appropriate to let the manager know this accommodation is not necessary, then that definitely is possible. Does that happen? Highly unlikely because uh, there are other layers in how, like, if you're thinking of duration, how long have the symptoms even been mitigated enough for this letter to be revoked in under a year? Um, are you that great of a clinician or is the client on the most appropriate medication? And how does it actually assist or help them to um, allow the manager access and knowledge sooner to information that they don't really need to be privy to? So instead, it's more of a conversation with the client. Um, is this accommodation that you're actually still thinking you're needing? Are you living in a place where you still think it's it's likely that you would want to try and um, maintain um, your ESA without those fees. Because when the year comes up, we have done enough treatment that I will not write you a new letter. So then that's a conversation of, um, you know, really how does this change the relationship? So again, that dual relationship and um, what prep work can be done. Um, I've definitely had clients where I hadn't renewed the letter um, and it did cause ruptures in the mm -hmm. relationship that we were able to repair. Uh, and a majority of it was providing them, uh, again, the resources and the work necessary to see if they could uh, find new essentially new housing or if they could afford the pet fees. Um, and so that's a conversation I have up front in regards to now writing the letter that, um, it, you know, by the t if I don't renew the letter next year or if you can't find someone to renew the letter or if you've done this, the assessment's been done and, and there's no nexus, um, can you still afford to even live in this place with these other um, fees on hand? Um, and oftentimes the, the cases that the clients can because we've had that conversation. This is a bit of a minefield, and we haven't even gotten to the big question that providers are always <laughs> most worried about is, what if the ESA attacks somebody? So if the ESA attacks somebody, the individual who's liable is the handler, but you definitely can be liable in regards to reprimands against your license if you do not show that you did full risk uh, uh, benefits conversation that you didn't include in your informed consent in regards to what um, you will do if there is legal liability found against the animal and that you actually can show that you um, were aware of the animal's temperament and demeanor. That's why, again, um, part of the assessment is seeing the animal. Um, there, there have been cases, um, in particular with a lot of websites where clinicians just essentially rubber stamp the letter, right. um, and they're, they're putting themselves in a lot of risk because they, they don't have any way to really understand the nexus in the same format, um, in regards to seeing the animal versus just the, the information written. Um, additionally, uh, it depends on, um, really the, the, the state you're in some, some states, you know, if, if the animal bites, that's it. Like there, there's no, um, it's, it's not essentially even in regards to um, the handler uh, or, or the property. It's that the, the animal be taken in and put down. So that's another conversation you want to have in, to your client. And the, this is a, a huge extreme measure um, that you could put yourself at risk if you're not doing the due diligence of taking your, your um, ESA to training and, and learning um, certain things. If your uh, animal's high energy and, and you're not, right? I, is mitigating it that if the animal forces you to go out and really and play engage um, and 
then do you have enough energy or do you not really ever have enough energy to be able to um, give this animal the, the appropriate releases that are necessary for it to maintain a level of calm? When it comes to the bad thing happening that an ESA has hurt somebody, what does that look like in terms of the potential liability for a clinician? I mean, does that in a lot of cases just come down to documentation and being able to provide during an investigation adequate assessment and and documentation about why you clinically made the choice you made to provide an ESA letter? Yeah, it definitely goes down to documentation. When it comes to the the legal cases that I'm aware of, uh, a majority of them involve really just landlords trying to remove ESAs um, and that any uh, documentation regards to a, a pet harming someone is that the it, even in writing it's written as a pet and not an ESA. Um, uh, that being said, the, uh, the more that it becomes normal, I would say, or, or uh, part of mainstream to actually be assessed to have uh, an emotional support animal, the more that the clinician is going to have uh, liability. Because uh, just like in other cases in regards to safety for the client, um, you know, what, what measures are being taken for the safety of the community? When we think of our client um, being under the influence, what, what are sort of the safety measures that we put there? Um, what is the conversation that we're having? Um, if we think of a client who, um, it, it, if, if we work with the uh, sexual abuse or juvenile sex offenders, we think of the community, like they're included in our assessment and ability to maintain safety. They're also included in what we're doing for um, our legal liability and our level of, of expertise. It's also a conversation to have with your malpractice. Are they going to even mm-hmm. cover you uh, if you're writing ESA letters? Can you show and prove that you've done your due diligence in regards to understanding the laws for your license type in your state? For someone like you who's licensed in multiple states, it's a matter of knowing then each of your insurance providers' rules and regulations about that kind of thing. Have you encountered, like, I'm just curious, are there additional fees associated with being a writer of ESA letters? When, you know, in California, we have a common insurance provider is CPH. So does CPH charge an additional fee to you as a licensee, or is that just an included part of the annual premium you pay as an insured? Yeah, um, specifically for my uh, malpractice insurance, there is no additional fees. uh, And um, it really goes down to that I had a conversation in regards to the amount of training and and, uh, understanding of the law. Um, There is a conversation um, that I I did have um, in regards to what exactly they could they could protect me from um so that it really depends on if there someone was harmed how they were harmed uh, in regards to if they could essentially protect me or not um and uh and if if it's going to be uh, a fight on dual fronts should i say because maybe it's protecting my license mm-hmm. uh, with the board but also i'm um, having like actual legal reprimands from the right. community that consideration is a pretty significant one with the ability for mental health professionals to write ESA letters opens up a liability, I don't want to say trap, but a, a, there are a lot of liability risks there in then a provider having the scope of competence to write a letter. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Um, f- you know, if 
it's hard because we live in an age right now where there's so many certifications. Like you can Google any term associated with therapy and pop up with certifications uh-huh. that in a lot of ways don't mean anything. Um, and they're just a company that's invented some certification. How did you feel like you were trained enough and competent enough to write these letters and stand behind? I know the process. I know the informed consent. And this is what I'm ready to do. So, uh, I would say that a a majority of it comes to talking to other professionals that aren't even mental health professionals. Um, I have great relationships with a variety of veterinarians. Um, I've had conversations about how I could I could even understand demeanor and temperament. What are the things that I would look for Um, whenever I I had um, the, the rare situations of ESAs that weren't dogs or cats. Um, I, I had I had consultation. I, I had networking with them to, to have that conversation. I certainly have uh, had conversations then in the clinical realm with individuals who use like equine therapy um, and, and asking um, just how they understand and look for the relationship in regards to in that moment with that um, that specific client. So again, not an emotional support animal, but what what are, are the things that you're looking for? Are you looking for eye contact? Are you looking for like like how they pet the animal, like, uh, and when it comes to your interventions, you, you know, is, uh, is there, is there sitting on the horse? Is there just being near it? Um, what, what exactly are, are you wanting to see? And, and how do you know that that's sort of like helping mm-hmm. um, the individual? The other thing is I always make sure I understand, um, right. There is no certification to be a certified emotional support animal writer letter or assessor there are certificates so i always want to make sure that i'm understanding like is this just a certificate and could i get ceus right because one we always want to get ceus but two ceus usually makes me feel like this individual has done due diligence there's research attached to it um and and that gives me more access to more information um and, and then finally, when it comes to just additional training, it's really creating that community because when it comes to the letters that I was writing originally, they were for regular apartment dwellings. Um, but until I connected with other community, I wasn't aware of the distinction and differences in regards to colleges and universities and this sort of like additional level. Um, when I had a client actually move to a college and I they requested all this documentation information. I was I was appalled, actually, and I was actually angry. Um, and then I I did research and I understood. Okay, well, they are not only living in at the school, but the school has a liability to protect mm-hmm. a larger community um, than in regards to a, a landlord who's renting out spaces. Uh, and and they also need to make sure that the accommodation they're providing doesn't also need to be provided in the classroom setting, um, because if this um, ESA is necessary to help maintain and sustain focus and attention, if the client has ADHD, um, well, how is that not necessary in the classroom setting? Um, and so oftentimes they wanted a, a well-rounded history to make sure that they were proving that they were providing all the accommodations mm-hmm. to their students that were necessary. So there's sort of own legal a covering of their butt, so to speak. Um, and I would say that when it came to actually making the decision, like uh, this is something that I feel comfortable doing. Um, one, it was that I was aware that because the laws are always changing, you only ever have a certain level of comfort. Uh, and um, two, uh, in regards to my clients and understanding their 
their symptoms and even going, you know, essentially the, the forensic route. How am I asking my questions and how am I doing my assessment so that they're, they're comfortable enough to disclose all the necessary information and actually explain and show me sort of what this looks like uh, in regards to their relationship with this animal and how it helps uh, mitigate these symptoms. For some clients, it's, it's so easy for them to explain. They can just identify pinpoints. But for other clients, it's it's really like this feeling or this vibe. It's very um, uh, hard for them to describe like how they know that they feel okay because this ESA is near them and what exactly it's mitigating. So it means me having to do more diligence in regards to doing my assessment, having medical necessity, understanding their diagnosis. When considering putting yourself out there as somebody who writes these letters and does so on a forensic basis, how does a clinician even go about doing that? I mean, obviously, you and I just talked about the training portion, also keeping in mind the liability insurance. But how I'm curious, how do you make yourself known how you decide how long of an appointment you need? Um, like, is there basically an apprenticeship for this? So you learn how to do it correctly? And are you under a supervisor for a certain amount of time? Not that there's a requirement, but is that a pretty standard recommendation? So when I decided to go more towards the the forensic route, I definitely looked at the current research that was out there. Um, and now there's even more current research since 2020. Um, and uh, I, I sort of read how the assessments kind of played out and how they looked. Um, and then I, I actually had discussions with actual forensic psychologists. So even higher level than me in regards to when they were doing um, uh, legal assessments for courts, what, what they were looking for. Um, and some of the things I learned, it's not going to be one session. I, I try to have at least two or three okay. sessions. Um because there's some things I have to accommodate for in that, like, if the, the pet's really tired the day of the appointment, they're probably not going to do, do the do. So I can't um, really fault that on the client. Um, and uh, it, it often involved um, being aware so that I'm going to have about three hours, right? Okay. So three sessions um, that I let the client know if they have... Um, uh, because, again, telehealth and technology, um, if they want to send me videos, uh, because maybe this, this thing's only happening at night, that gives me, again, more evidence. I put that in the client client file, it's sent through um, encrypted email. Um, and uh, so I have about three sessions. I, I had um, a community of clinicians, so it wasn't so much a supervisory role. It was more of a consultation role, and we, we bounced <laughs> bounce things off of each other um, and, and from what the research they found um, and what they were doing. I would say that the majority of information and support I, I received um, in regards to feeling more secure and feeling more competent was when I was discussing discussing um, this with actual individuals who use animals in their practice. Um, there, there was just this other level of understanding in regards to um, how the animal is engaging with an individual that I wasn't thinking about in the same realm because I'm thinking of like my own mm -hmm. pet. Um, and once I made that clear distinction in regards to how this animal is not just a pet, um, then I was able to talk and, and describe the situation in ways that previously I, I, I just didn't have the, the understanding or capacity for. When you're writing your notes for these forensic sessions, I'm curious, what is the standard billing code that's used? Is it the standard 90891, um, which is the assessment code or 
what is it? And, and is this something insurance ever pays for as an adjunctive service or is it not because it's something totally separate from standard therapy? So um, I don't take insurance <laughs> and that's how I've gone about that. But I have colleagues that do. It is the standard nine, um, nine oh. You and I are, is it 907-91? Thank you. As I was saying, right? that was it 907-908-91? The standard psychiatric assessment code. Yes. 907-91. Psychiatric you, diagnostic Ariel. evaluation without medical service. Thank you, Ariel. 907-91. Okay. Uh, I'm the one who doesn't take insurance. Go me. Okay. <laughs> um, and then essentially, if there's two other sessions, it's, it's 908-37. So the, the full um, 53 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's only three assessing appointments, they've had uh, insurances reimburse them. Um, and because it's not considered ongoing treatment, it's it's assessment and referral. Um, definitely um, uh, other managed health care plans that might be connected to like an EAP employee assistance program or SAP student assistance program. So in regards to colleges and universities um, have covered it as well, again, because it's assessment and referral. But you are doing a full battery essentially assessment and a, a comprehensive referral that they can't just be the letter. It needs to really discuss like, here are some other things that I believe would be beneficial for um, you in regards to your treatment process. So potentially referral for um, psychiatric medication or referral for medical evaluation. If um, the symptom, uh, if you have um, hyperthyroid or uh, and, and what, what my other treatments might be necessary there um, uh, in regards to even I've made referrals to um, different veterinary clinics that, um, again, if you have a more specialized ESA, um, so someone who like ha understands reptiles and birds versus mm -hmm. dogs and cats. Um, and uh, I've definitely had clients who've had emotional support animals who are a little bit older or senior. Um, and so just making sure and understanding um, what they need to do in regards to that realm uh, and, and taking care mm -hmm. of the animal. So. So full assessment, uh, full um, resource and referral process. And um, a year later, the client may return to me and we do essentially the same thing okay. uh, or my colleagues um, if uh, uh, the client still uh, uh, needs uh, the ESA. And usually the questions are pretty much the same assessment wise, but they're also follow up. Like I, I do ask like what has changed? Um, has the relationship um, like the between you and your ESA even change sometimes um, because of the of the nexus the, the animal even has more awareness of its ability to help comfort its its human and um, and therefore create a really good long lasting bond. I'm glad that we got to that piece of considering with insurance and thank you for clearing clarifying that assessment piece. And I'm also before we tie things up today the other thing I'm thinking about you're also having to come out of the gate saying there's no guarantee. So if someone is paying you cash rate, for example, for this assessment process, the possibility that you're going to do the assessment and say, I'm actually not going to write this letter and here's why. Um, but mm -hmm. keeping that mind in mind as a provider that it is not a guarantee of, of that provision of letter. It's mm -hmm. it's just an assessment. Um, and I'm sure you cover that in your informed consent and all of that. But yep. reminding yep. My, our listeners. My clients are aware that they're paying for the assessment. They're not paying for the letter. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Errol, you have covered so much during this last hour. 
one of the resources that you were kind enough to give to us that will include in the course player a number of attachments for people to use in their consideration of, you know, is this a service animal? Is this a therapy animal? And kind of important considerations. So thank you for that. We will have those for download in the course player for our Clearly Clinical members. And for our listeners, how can people learn more about your work and about you? Um, You do so many different services for the community, this being one of them. So um, I am the clinical director of Guidance Teletherapy. So that is GuidanceTT.com. It is a co-op of uh, clinicians. So essentially group practice, but they are members of it and um, they aren't actual like practice members in that the money they make is theirs and I don't have to touch it. helps me. Um, And together we um, uh, work on a variety of essentially letter writing. So we do ESA letters. We also do um, uh, transition affirming letters um, for our trans and non-binary clients. Um, And we provide uh, treatment that's specialized towards stress management, uh, depression, and anxiety. And then specifically for me, I work with the LGBTQIA community, military members and their families, and survivors of sexual assault. And uh, I can definitely be found with my email, alandrum at guidancett.com. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's always nice to see you, but you are just a wealth of information on this topic. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Absolutely. I would definitely encourage listeners to join the um, Facebook group and the Emotional Support Animal Guide for Mental Health Professionals. It's run by a clinician named um, Becky Stone. She has an e-course, but if you follow her, she does provide CEU trainings. They are live webinars, um, and they are usually throughout the year. Um, And she actually worked uh, in this college and university setting. So she has an even more like keen, distinct eye that's different than mine. Um, And that's also where you can find clinicians who you can refer to. So when I need to refer a client for um, a a letter, because again, I'm keeping more of a forensic stance, um, that's where I can access them throughout the United States that have been trained uh, and and do know what to look for and and are able to assess and, and give really good informed consent. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ariel. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.